word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have on this Lord's Day to gather together as your people, to study your word. We thank you for the Bible. And Lord, we admit that we are, are finite in our understanding and it takes some work to, to think about the themes and meanings of these books. But I pray, Lord, that we would come to deeply love your scriptures. I pray that they would be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that we would grow strong, that we would grow wise in our understanding of them. Lord, we pray that you would equip us to love and serve you in this world through the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so how's everybody doing in your Bible reading? Where are you in your Bible reading? I'm just kind of finishing up the book of Ezekiel. I'm doing the chronological Bible in my Bible reading. So I'm learning all about the instructions on how to build the new temple, a new temple which was never built. So kind of curious uh, there. But where, where are you guys in your Bible reading? What are you reading? Joshua, Numbers, Nehemiah. Good. We're going to be doing a sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, not next, but the series after that. So yeah, Nehemiah is coming. Good. Now, what kind, of, uh, what kind of path do you guys do? Do you sort of do randomly pick a book of the Bible or just something you're thinking or feeling or programs? What's your, what's your Bible program like? Elizabeth? I use the daily office, and it has a reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament each day, and then also have some psalms. Oh, cool. And is it like... Is it kind of destined to sort of get you through the Bible in a year or two years, or is it just yeah, the, it gets you through? I think over a period of years, it's been like carrying another year. Oh, cool, cool, good. Yeah, I've, some of you guys have joined me on the uh, Bible app that I use, the U Version app. Um, uh, a few of you joined me on that thing, and if that's helpful to you, use it. For many, many years, I used a one-year Bible that I just carried around with me wherever I went. So it, it's been on many, many states and even in different countries I carried that thing around. So if you like the regular book version, great. That's an awesome way to do it too. But I just want to encourage you as we study the Bible to be reading the Bible. I think it will help you immensely in your walk with God. Okay, we're going to begin with the book of Leviticus. Now, some uh, preliminary questions for the book of Leviticus who here would say that Leviticus is your favorite book of the Bible? Anyone? I remember we talked early on about what's your favorite book. I don't remember anybody mentioning Leviticus. Anybody? No? Okay, that's all right. How many of you have taken your life verse from the book of Leviticus? Anybody have that crocheted on the wall or pinpointed it on the wall or whatever that is? No? My grandma had a few of those. I don't remember any from Leviticus. Okay, have, now this one touches a little bit closer to home. Have any of you ever heard a sermon preached from the book of Leviticus? Anybody? Not even just one sermon? Yes, you have? You have, Eddie? Yep, you have? All right. Well, I don't think I've ever preached one. I'm, I'm pretty sure I haven't. Okay, now this is, has to do with the content of the book of Leviticus. If you could buy sunscreen for two characters in the book of Leviticus, who would they be? And I'll give you a hint. We meet them in chapter 10. Anybody know? Yes, the two sons of Aaron who are named? No, not, not Hophni and Phinehas. That's Samuel. Or no, sorry. That's uh, uh, Eli from the book of Samuel. Nadab and Abihu. Good. There we go. We'll talk about their story a little bit later. Okay, sadly, the book of Leviticus is often seen as irrelevant to the church today. Preachers tend not to preach from the book of Leviticus, and teachers tend not to teach from it either. Uh, if I submitted a book proposal for the Leviticus-driven life, or perhaps your best ephod now, most Christian publishers would have me escorted from the building. There's not a lot of interest in the book of Leviticus. So, 
why should we study Leviticus? Sure, we believe Paul when he wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all scripture, all including Leviticus, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of, of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. But Leviticus... Laws about bodily discharges, laws about eating blood, and to answer your question, yes, I intentionally omitted pictures from this slide, and you're welcome. I did not want to do a Google image search for eating blood or bodily discharges. Now, if we're going to profit from reading the book of Leviticus, I think we need to be careful not to miss the forest for the trees. Rather than focus on all the little details in the book of Leviticus, I think we need to ask, why are, is there so much attention given to the details in the book of Leviticus? Why is Leviticus so concerned, for example, with purity? Why do people need priests? And why is so much attention given to sacrifices in the book? Well, let's find out by taking a closer look at your new favorite book, the book of Leviticus. Historical background. Now, while Leviticus never explicitly claims to have been authored by Moses, if you have been with us for the last few weeks, you will recall that we have said that Moses is the majority author of the first five books of the Bible, which are sometimes called what? The Pentateuch, or sometimes called the Torah. For the, you language people, why would we call them the Pentateuch? Five, right? Penta means five, like pentagrams, a five-sided triangle or shape or whatever. Um, so penta, five, good. Pentagon, okay, all these words, five. The book opens like this. Somebody read Leviticus 1, 1 and 2a. So the Lord called Moses and spoke with him and saying, speak to the people. So Moses is the author. That was very good reading, Frank. Were you there? <laughs> well, yeah, it sounds like a first person. I'm just teasing. I'm <laughs> just teasing, Frank. The phrase, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, dot, 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 is used 18 times in the book of Leviticus especially at different transition points. So, for example, uh, Leviticus 4.1, 5.16, uh, It's often a transition between one theme and the other. The Lord spoke to Moses. So he's, we presume that he is the majority author of the book. Now, the date. While there are those who argue that the book of Leviticus was written just before or just after the Babylonian exile, which is later in the period of Israel's history, there are no clear indications that the book contains late materials. Given the narrative flow, it makes much more sense to see Leviticus as the logical continuation of Exodus, which would put the date of the book somewhere around between 1400 and 1500 B.C. Act 3 of the book of Exodus... Uh, Exodus 25 through 40, covers the construction of the tabernacle. So the book of Leviticus picks up by describing the various sacrifices performed in the holy place. That's Leviticus 1 through 7. So it's sort of a continuation of the book of Exodus. All right, what is the genre of the book? If you had to guess the genre of the book, what would you say? What type of book is this? What would you guess? Type of book? Type of book? Anyone? What's that? Law? Law book? Might, that might be. What's that? Instructions? Well, let's look. I think the best way to describe this is theological history. That is, it intends to provide us with a historical background to the law. So the people who could look at hey, why do we have all these rules and regulations and purity laws and sacrifices? They could look back and see, ah, okay, this is the story of the construction of the law. 
or the institution of the law. Most of the book is made up of rules and regulations, as you said, pertaining to the tabernacle. The name Leviticus means, means pertaining to the Levites, who were the priestly tribe of Israel. So name some famous people who came from the tribe of Levi. We talked about this in our class, if you remember. Who are uh, two famous people who came from the tribe of Levi? Anybody? Aaron. Yep, Aaron, who was kind of the, the first priest. He came from the tribe of, of uh, Levi. And if Aaron came from the tribe of Levi... Who else might have come from the tribe of Levi? Well, Levi came from the tribe of Levi, thus the name. Uh, Somebody who's intimately related to Aaron. Moses, who was Aaron's what? Brother. Okay, good. You could have also said Miriam, who was their sister. So she had played a, a role in the story, too. Okay, with that being said, there are some stories in the book. I alluded to that earlier. The most famous story concerns Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They offered strange fire or unauthorized fire before God, and God sent strange fire down upon their heads, and they died. Okay, let's look at the structure of the book. In part one of the book of Leviticus, we have the laws of sacrifice. That's chapters one through seven. So as you read through the book, chapters one through seven, you're going to find all sorts of laws related to sacrifice. Uh, In chapter one through chapter six, verse seven, we have instructions for the laity. And then in chapter uh, six, verse eight through 738, we have instructions for the priests. Why do you think that there are more instructions for the laity than for the priests? Any ideas? Any thoughts? Because they're smarter than the priests? Hey, as a almost priest, Protestant New Testament, I take offense. No, not quite. Why do you think? Let's get those wheels turning. Come on now. If you all need a cup of coffee, get one. Why? Why do you think? More sense? Okay, well, maybe the Levites have more sense, so there's less for them, or the people have more sense, so there's more sense, more for them. That's a good theory. We don't really know. I'm just asking. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. There's more people than less priests, and so there's more, you know, activity and instruction that they need. Well, just a thought. That's a good point, too. She said that some of the rules given to the laity would also apply to the priests as well. And so you don't need to repeat everything for the priests since many of the things were sort of universal in their application. Good. Okay, the next part, part two, is the priestly narrative. We mentioned that earlier. Uh, We have the consecration of Aaron and his sons, chapter 8. We have Aaron's first sacrifices in chapter 9. We have the judgment on Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered strange fire, unauthorized fire before the Lord. Fire consumed them. That's chapter 10. And then in part 3, we have uncleanness and its treatment. What do you do if you have become unclean? Part 4, we have the practice of holiness, which is chapters 17 through 27. This, cha- this section contains laws for handling blood, prohibitions against incense, law, uh, incest, excuse me, laws regarding being a good neighbor, observing the Sabbath, uh, festivals, etc. There's also an interesting chapter in this section dealing with the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, all the people were supposed to give back uh, the original property belonging to the people. Uh, debts were forgiven, and indentured serv- servants were set free. Now, how many times did Israel? Now, how often was the year of Jubilee to happen, and how often did the Israelites actually celebrate it? 
I think it was I think it was 50 years. You want to? You can look it up and check me on there. It's every 50th year. And uh, how often did the Israelites celebrate it? How often did they do this? Exactly zero times as far as we know. There's no indication that they ever did the year of Jubilee. Now, why would God give this instruction for the year of Jubilee if the people never even did the year of Jubilee? What do you think the significance is that? Year of Jubilee. All properties return to the clan. All debts are, are forgiven. Indentured servants set free. What is that about? Why would God tell the people to do that? Right, it's a picture of his salvation. It's a picture of the new creation. There will be no debtors in heaven. There will be no indentured servants in heaven. All the people will celebrate and have freedom in the new heavens and the new earth. And Israel was designed to be a little picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And that's significant in the book of Leviticus because we might get bogged down in all the purity laws and the rules and the regulations and the sacrifices. What God is doing is essentially constructing a, a living, breathing replica of the consummate kingdom of God when Jesus comes back to make all things new. Now, there's discontinuity there as well, and we'll talk about that, because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, so we will not be making sacrifices in the new heavens and the new earth. But again, I want you to read the book of Leviticus, and I want you to read it with that in mind, that this, uh, all these laws and all these rules and all these regulations are designed to paint a picture in the minds of the people about the holiness and beauty of the kingdom of God. Okay? Let's keep going. No year, no year of Jubilee. Okay, style. Moses presents the information in the book of Leviticus very clearly, very simply. He doesn't use any poetry or flowery language of any kind. Leviticus is focused on communicating information. Okay, so let's look at some themes in the book of Leviticus. We touched on these a little bit already, but the first theme, major theme, is the holiness of God. Behind all the laws, all the rules and sacrifices is the central teaching of the book, and that is God is holy. Now, what is holiness? If you could define the word holy, what would you say holiness means? Uniqueness, good. Set apart, holy. Pure, good. Perhaps you could say uh, morally excellent as well. Uh, the word holiness in the Bible, again, it has to do with being set apart. And so in the book of Leviticus, you will find God making a bunch of things holy that were not previously holy. And not just people, candlesticks, and spoons, and basically barbecue utensils for barbecuing this stuff. He sets it aside for God's special use. It's an ordinary thing that is set aside and becomes holy because it's used by God. So how does that translate into the idea of holiness for us as New Testament believers who are never going to make sacrifices like this, who are never going to build a temple or a tabernacle, how does that concept of holiness apply to us as members of the, of the church? When God says you shall be holy as God is holy, what does he mean? Yep, that we receive the holiness of Christ, and then what happens? We become holy, which looks like what? Yeah, that we're set apart from the rest of the world. We're set apart from the world, but we're also set apart for the world to serve the world and love the world and, in, and love people and share the gospel. So that's the concept of holiness in the Bible, and it's all over the book of, Exodus, of Leviticus. Excuse me. Standing as motivation behind the various commands is the divine statement, I am the Lord your God. We live like we live because God is who he is. God is holy. 
All right. Holiness of God. Because God is present in the center of the camp, the tabernacle, the people are to be holy as God is holy. Leviticus 11.45. God is separate from the present world, and only those who are freed from the stain of sin are permitted into his presence. The holiness of God is worked out in three important areas of the book of Leviticus. And we're going to talk about those areas. Number one, or maybe point A, is the sacrificial system. Point B is the priesthood. And then part uh, C is the purity laws. So let's look at those three areas. And we'll try to see if we can connect those areas to the holiness of God and ultimately to our salvation in Christ. All right, let's begin. Sacrificial system. The book of Leviticus opens with a long consideration of sacrifices. That's chapters 1 through 7. Sacrifice is the most important activity of formal worship during the Old Testament period. The sacrificial system reflected the covenant relationship that God had with his people. First, sacrifices are a gift on the part of the worshiper to his covenant Lord. Remember that a covenant is made between two unequal parties, a Lord and a servant. So it makes sense that we, as the lower party, would give gifts to God. Second, many sacrifices included a notion of communion or fellowship between covenant partners. Remember, a covenant is a relationship between two unequal parties. So we have the, the separation between God, who is ultimate, and we who are finite. And then we also have the relationship, the connection or fellowship that we have as finite people with the infinite God. Uh, lastly, perhaps most importantly, sacrifice plays a major role in healing rifts in the covenant relationship, a, fun a function frequently described by the technical term expiation. What is expiation and why is that important? Have you ever heard the word expiation? Anybody? A couple of nods? Okay, give it a shot. If you haven't heard of it, that's okay. It's kind of a technical term. Uh, how would you define expiation? What does that word mean? Those of you who are nodding, did you just hear it and not know what it means? That's possible. What is expiation? Anybody want to give it a crack? Making up for. That's certainly an element of it, for sure. Making up for. The wrath of God is appeased or turned away. Good. Reconciliation substitution? Well, let's take a look. All those are good. Those are all good answers. Way to go. Get out on a limb. Um, that's all part of it. Expiation refers primarily to the removal of guilt. When a person was guilty of violating his or her covenant relationship with God through disobedience, then repentant Israelites could seek God's forgiveness by offering a substitute to take the penalty of their sin. In this way, sacrifice served as the divinely sanctioned means of restoring our covenant relationship with God. Okay, so different types of offerings or sacrifices within the system. Burnt offerings. In this, the most common sacrifice, the worshiper brought an unblemished animal to the priests and that animal would be burned in the fire. Killed first and then burned. That little cow kind of looks like he's alive. So I just wanted, no cows were harmed uh, in the live fire here. Uh, burnt offerings. The purpose of the burnt offering is threefold. First, the unblemished animal substituted for the morally blemished worshiper. To drive this point home, the worshiper would lay a hand on the head of the animal in order to identify with the victim before it was slaughtered. Essentially saying, this animal is me. We have a connection here, a spiritual connection, because I have broken the law and I deserve to be punished. Second, there was a cost 
incurred to the worshiper. Unblemished animals were expensive, while blemished animals were worthless, totally worthless, or perhaps even worthless, not as much. But the point of the offering, however, was not to impoverish the worshiper. The, one could offer cattle, that was sort of the top-tier sacrifice. Uh, one could offer sheep or goats, uh, birds, depending on one's financial resources. little flash-forward to the New Testament, when Mary and Joseph went to the temple to offer their sacrifices, do you remember what kind of sacrifices that they offered? Say again? The one that the poor would offer, which is what? Birds. They offered birds. So that's the primary way that we often hear, you know, that Jesus grew up in a poor family and that his family was not, not wealthy. And we assume that because of this sacrifice that they offered, which was the sort of the lowest level sacrifice that you could offer. So probably Joseph, in his role as a carpenter, was a little bit closer to the bottom of the rung than he was to sort of the big time, you know, rich developer end of the, of the rung. And so he did not offer uh, cattle, he offered birds. Okay. Third, the sacrifices were gifts to God. Except for the skin, which went to the priests, the whole thing was burned and dedicated to the Lord. It was a gift to God. Now, moving to the New Testament. Somebody read uh, John 1, verse 29. Okay, knowing what you now know about burnt offerings, what did John the baptizer mean? How did the burnt offerings point us to Christ's once and for all sacrifice, which brings us eternal redemption? What did John mean when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? The sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. How was Jesus the sacrifice? Good. He, he, he took our sins so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could have that covenant relationship restored. Good. Uh, easy question. Maybe seems like a simple question. But where did that happen? On the cross. Remember, we talked about in that the, our overview of the whole Bible that Jesus died essentially as a covenant breaker on the cross in order to impute his covenant keeping to us through faith. We have faith in Jesus Christ and his covenant keeping, his sacrificial death is imputed to us. He died in our place, much like those animals died in the place of the people of Israel. Good. You're thinking, you're thinking. Okay, next type of offering is the grain offering. The grain offering gets its name from the nature of its two uh, main its main ingredient, which was fine flour. Two other components are oil and incense. Only a small portion of the flour and oil were combined with the incense. This gave the offering a fragrant smell when it was burned. The remainder of the flour and oil were given to feed the priests. Okay. The emphasis for this type of sacrifice is gift. The term grain offering is often translated tribute. It was a tribute. The grain offering was most often performed with the whole burnt offering that preceded it. We find that in Exodus and Numbers. Now, moving toward the New Testament, knowing what you now know about grain offerings, and we went through it a little bit quickly, how do grain offerings point us to the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us? Consider this verse. Somebody read Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. So how do the... How do the uh, Grain offerings point us to the work of Jesus Christ. What are some elements of the grain offerings? Uh, 
that point us to Christ. Yep, the good smell, the fragrance. Now, how does the good smell and the, the fragrance translate into the New Testament and impact our understanding of the New Testament? Yeah, the we're to be the aroma of Christ in the world. Now, what does that mean? I, I get what you're saying, but let's flesh that out a little bit. You're absolutely right. We are to be the aroma of Christ in the world. What are some ways that we, as the church, as Pinewoods Church, and as individual Christians, can be the aroma of Christ in our city, in our world? What are some ways? Katie? Mm-hmm. Mm, good. Yes. Dave? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we, we give our lives as a, f- a fragrant offering to Christ, who made us fragrant by dying on the cross, taking away our filth, taking away our shame, clothing us, Zechariah 3 says, we'll get to that, with the righteousness of Christ. There's this famous uh, prophecy where Joshua the high priest is clothed with filthy garments, and then the angel of the Lord comes and takes away his filthy garments and gives him new clothing that has that kind of new clothing smell. You know, your shirt you just bought from the store kind of has that new clothing smell or just fresh out of the laundry smell. And so we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and then clothed in that righteousness— Our lives become a pleasing aroma, a gift to God, which is not in order to secure his blessing, but in order to give thanks for the blessings he's given us in Christ. Isn't that cool? All right, let's go to the next one. The fellowship or peace offering. The Hebrew term for this sacrifice, shilamim, comes from the common Hebrew word that means peace, the word shalom. Have you ever heard that? Shalom. The reason it is often called the fellowship offering is that this sacrifice was was predominantly for fellowship between both the worshiper and God and the worshiper and one's fellow worshipers, right? So the other sacrifices have a more strictly vertical sense. This one has a horizontal sense as well. It's a fellowship or peace offering. Okay. The term shalom has a definite covenant significance in the scriptures, denoting the whole or right relationship that exists between covenant partners. The corporate meal that was the outcome of this sacrifice was a celebration of that relationship. Everyone received a piece of the offering, the Lord, the priest, and the fellow worshipers. Okay. The fellowship offering comes with gift imagery. It was offered as a gift of thanks to God. It also comes with expiation imagery. We talked about that. In this sacrifice, the worshiper would place his hands or her hands on the head of the sacrificial animal in order to identify with it. Leviticus 3 verse 2. Now, knowing what you know about fellowship and peace offerings... How do these offerings point us to the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins? Consider this passage from Matthew 26. Somebody read Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. Okay, so knowing what you know about the fellowship or peace offerings, how does this connect us 
to Jesus and his work to the institution of the Lord's Supper. What is that all about? What's the connection? What are some of the connections? There are many. What do you think? Well, let me ask you one question. Who, who eats the Lord's Supper the night that it is instituted? Disciples? And who else? Jesus. When you offered up the fellowship offering, there was a portion given to the Lord, there was a portion given to the priests, and there was a portion given to the people. So you have a horizontal element, and you have a vertical element as well. What about the theme of expiation or forgiveness? How does the Lord's Supper and Jesus' work on the cross point us to that fellowship aspect, the expiation? Cleansing? Somebody else over here? That Jesus died? Mm -hmm. That he was the sacrifice and he says what? This is my body which is given for you. This cup is the new what in the covenant? Is the blood of the what? Covenant. And I'm not trying to impose that on the text. What I'm trying to show you is that the Bible is infused throughout with covenant language. And so Jesus, in saying this is the blood of the covenant, he's going all the way back to Leviticus. When he says, this is my body, he's going all the way back to Leviticus. And he's showing us that just like these animals, these innocent animals died for your sins so that you might have fellowship with God and with one another, so also my death on the cross gives you fellowship with God, forgiveness of sins, fellowship with one another, ultimately gives us shalom, wholeness, peace. Looking forward to a great banquet when Jesus comes again. Do you know that the most frequent uh, picture of what heaven, or really ultimately the new heavens and the new earth, the recreation will be, what is the most frequent imagery given to that in the Bible? A banquet, a wedding, a meal. We today would call it a wedding reception, right? Where all your friends are there, and there's food, and there's drinks, and there's desserts, and there's dancing, and there's music, and there's joy. And everyone that you love from your whole life is there in one place, in one room. That's an image of the kingdom of God, okay? And it all kind of ties back to Leviticus. All right, let's keep going. Now, then there's the purification or guilt offering. Now, both purification and guilt offering are similar to the burnt offering. The main difference is that the purification offerings were often offered for unintentional sins against God, while guilt offerings were for sins committed not primarily against God, but against other people. The guilt offering included an additional 20% payment offered to cover the damages caused by one's sin against another person. So uh, the Christian faith is a very practical faith. When we sin against one another, it's not like, oh, it just doesn't really matter, just go ask God. There's actually restitution that needs to be made in this life. Okay, purification guilt offerings. Now, knowing what you now know about the purification and guilt offerings, compare and contrast these two sacrifices with the one sacrifice that Jesus offered for our sins. Consider this passage from the book of Hebrews. Somebody read Hebrews 10, 11 through 13. So compare and contrast what we see in the, in the whole sacrificial system with Jesus' sacrifice for us. What are some of the differences that the writer of Hebrews points out from Hebrews 10? 
Yeah, then that's really the main difference is that, is that it's a once and for all sacrifice. Remember, these sacrifices were not a one-off thing. Hey, I'm going to give you all these instructions. You're going to do these sacrifices, and then you're done. You know, it's move on. They had to be over and over and over again. Why did they have to be over and over again? Exactly. The sins are over and over again, right? They would, you, you could stop doing the sacrifices once you stopped sinning. Is that ever going to happen? No, it is not. We know that through personal experience, but also through what the scriptures say. We will sin until we see Jesus face to face. Now, Jesus does the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. Um, and then what does he do? He sits down at the right hand of God doing what? Waiting, waiting for the time until all of his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And so Jesus, our king, is reigning right now. That image of sitting is a, a sitting at the right hand of God. If you're a king, there's only one person in the room who's sitting, and it's you, right? Everybody, if you walk into a, a, an ancient throne room, maybe the king of Israel or the king of uh, Babylon or Pharaoh or somebody, nobody in that room is sitting down except the man who's in charge or the queen, the woman who's in charge, right? Everybody else is standing. They're ready to serve. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, reigning over all things, having made the ultimate final sacrifice for our sins. No more sacrifices need to be made because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice and his blood cleanses all of us or expiates all of us from all of our sins. And so the expiation that the sacrifices pointed to has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. So who are you in Christ? Are you dirty or are you clean? Clean. But I look at you and I say, well, I don't know. Some of you don't look very clean. I, you know, I, I see you on Wednesday, what you're up to. So how's that possible? You just say you're clean, but then you also say, i kind of saying, hmm, are you really that clean? You know, can I check your browser history? You know? So are you really clean? How does that work? Through God's eyes we are. Explain. That's good. You're right. Keep, keep going. Very good. So what he said was that God sees us as righteous objectively, even though subjectively some sins remain in our lives. Amen? We still sin. But when God sees us, he sees us as clean because the righteousness of Jesus, Gary pointed out, is imputed to us. And therefore, we are clean in the sight of God. And so uh, what is the process of sanctification, which means becoming holy, we talked about holiness, is that about becoming who you're not, or is it about becoming who you are? It's about becoming who you are objectively in Christ. Now, there's a sense in which we're becoming who we're not, because we're becoming more like Jesus, but... It changes the perspective if we think about it that way because Christianity always starts with grace. We're going to talk about that this morning as we finish up the book of Galatians, which also ends with grace. Christianity starts with grace. And then our lives are not done in order to achieve the grace at the end of the road. It's in order to give thanks for the grace that we've already received on the first step of the road when we give our lives lives to Jesus through faith. Okay? Make sense? All right, let's keep going. All right, the priesthood. Priests were in charge of protecting the holiness of the camp through their administration of the sacrificial system. Since God is holy, the priests were set apart or ordained, Leviticus 8, for their service. 
Okay, priests were also instructed to teach the Israelites the law so that they could protect God's holiness in the camp. Somebody read Leviticus 10, verse 11. Good. We are, they were to teach the people all the statutes spoken them by Moses. Good. The key word there is teach. They were teachers. Okay, next theme is purity. A major concern for Leviticus is purity or cleanness, food, childbirth, skin diseases, and mildew and discharges are a few of the many topics that are treated in the book in connection with cleanness. Since God lived in the middle of the camp, the tabernacle, the camp needed to be pure. Anyone, the unclean Gentiles, could live outside the camp, but only Israelites were permitted to dwell inside the camp. Levites functioned as a buffer between the camp at large and the tabernacle itself. And so they were essentially sentries to make sure that nothing unholy came into contact with the holiness of God. Now, why would that be very important? Why would it be bad for you as an unholy, unclean person to come in contact with the holiness of God? You die. What happened to Nadab and Abihu? They died. They offered an uh, unauthorized fire. They said, well, I know God says to do it this way, but hey, we're going to try something new. God said, no, that's wrong. You should not try something new. They're consumed in a fire. Now, incidentally, uh, well, is that, that's Old Testament God. He's kind of mad, angry at stuff like that. Is that right? Tell me something very similar that happens to that in the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, right? What did they do? Well, they, gave, they, said, they sold some land, and they said, hey, we're giving all the money to the Lord. They didn't give all the money to the Lord. They lied to the Holy Spirit and dropped dead, right? Holiness, purity. You cannot be unholy in the presence of the Lord, which is why, again, Jesus gives us his holiness. He expiates our sin. He imputes his righteousness to us. Okay. Purity. Now, why do we no longer follow the purity laws of Leviticus? Is bacon still off limits for Christians? Thank you. Thank you. Consider this passage from the book of Acts. Somebody read Acts 10, verses 9 through 11. Actually, we're going to read uh, 9 through 16. So you can read it up there or you can read it in your Bible. Somebody read this, these first verses, 9 through 11. Okay, keep reading. Okay, so, purity theme. Did God just change his mind in the, in the vision? What, what is the significance of that vision? What is God really saying here? Well, in the Old Testament, you know, there were some things you couldn't eat. Bacon and shellfish and different animals with the wrong number of, you know, cloven hooves and all that. But now you can eat that stuff. New covenant. Okay, uh, what is this passage we just read kind of showing us about the newness of the new covenant? Gentiles can be saved, right? That's really the thrust of it. Let's look at uh, Acts 10, verse 28. Somebody read that. Eddie, why don't you read it since you got it? And do this for me, and Jesus said, Look, I'm also 
right? So it wasn't really about the animals. It was about the Gentiles. And God was showing Peter, I have made the Gentiles clean. They're no longer unclean. They can be clean in Christ. Now, all of these things set up to protect the holiness of God and the purity of laws and everything else, they have not been abolished by Jesus. They have been fulfilled in Jesus. And his holiness is imputed to us. Okay, purity. The sacrifices of the priests in Leviticus made the people of Israel pure. But God had bigger plans. Remember the covenant promise that God made to Abraham. I'll read it. Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and, will, and, will, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The sacrifice of Jesus, our high priest, brought purity to people from every nation in fulfillment of that promise. The laws of sacrifice and purity haven't been abolished, as we said. They have been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus kept the purity laws that we could never keep and sacrificed himself as the perfect sacrifice so that we could have unbroken fellowship with God. Somebody read Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. Beautiful passage. Amazing. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? Jesus fulfills Leviticus. He fulfills it. All of it was pointing to him, and Jesus did it all. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Somebody read that. Another beautiful passage. Beautiful. Do you think the people in the era of Leviticus entered the holy place or the holy of holy, which the high priest only entered once a year, do you think that they entered with confidence? We don't know for sure, but my guess is probably not, right? I mean, imagine you're walking into this glorious holy place and God has shown evidence that if you profane that or take it lightly or have some kind of uncleanness, man, you're dead. You're just going to be wiped out like that guy in Indiana Jones, you know, kind of gets his face burned off, right? That's happening. No confidence. So whenever we have Old Testament figures, I think probably the most interesting one um, is the father of John the Baptist. And he's he gets chosen to go into the holy place. You kind of get the sense that he's nervous. He's like, uh, great, it's my turn. You know, it's like no confidence. You know, they, they're kind of like, uh, are you sure you didn't get the long straw? Here you go. You know, because there's no confidence. But now we have confidence. This God, the God of Leviticus, is our God, and he receives us because of Christ. Beautiful. Okay, how important is Leviticus? Let's sum it up. Leviticus reminds us that God is holy and that we are not. Leviticus teaches us that we need a mediator, a great high priest who can stand in the gap of sin that separates us from God. Leviticus also teaches us that there is no salvation without sacrifice. We need a holy substitute to die for our sins. The good news, in Jesus, we have that mediator, Jesus Christ. 
as Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In Jesus, we also have a great high priest who can stand in the gap of sin that separates us from God. We read Hebrews, uh, I'll read Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even though the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of the creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Leviticus teaches us that there is no salvation without sacrifice. We need a holy substitute to die for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, that's a lot. Any questions about the book of Leviticus? Who here has a skin disease that prevents you from coming to church today? Yes, Jim. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, essentially, they would bring 20, I think it was, I don't know if it was 20% of their income or 20% um, in order to, I guess maybe it was 20% beyond the tithe in order to give restitution to the person that they injured. So even we, it's a funny term. We still talk about it in law today. Uh, if someone, if you gore someone's ox, it's sort of a legal term, which comes from the Old Testament. If uh, my ox gores one of your uh, sheep or even, unfortunately, someone in your family, and this is unintentional, I did not set that, set him off to do that, uh, then I would pay uh, the, your restitution, whatever that animal cost, plus 20%, essentially, is what it was. To the person, yeah, and not, not to the Lord. Good. Good question. Yeah, Don. When they say perfect sacrifice, is there somebody at that time that was the perfect Yeah, well, that's a good question. Uh, the priests, one of their jobs was to examine the animals that was brought in there. And uh, if you brought a, a lamb or a, some cattle or something that had some defect or was kind of the worst one, then they would say, uh-uh, that's... No, that's no good. Now, the good news is, if you, let's say you're like, well, I'm going to bring, you know, uh, my cattle, and this is the best one I have, and so I'll bring it in there, but it's still pretty messed up. Well, you could bring a lower level sacrifice. They could say, hey, thanks for trying here, but bring that animal home and come back with a, a bird, you know, or come back with something that you can afford to give. Mm-hmm. Good. Done. True. That's a good. That's a good point. Uh, if you didn't hear, Don was making the point of how often, like Ananias and Sapphira, do we kind of hide a portion of our sin or misrepresent ourselves before God or say, Lord, I'm this way and I'm this person. And that's part of the reason why we confess our sins every week. So I'm not trying to get you guys to feel bad about yourselves or, you know, it's like whip yourselves on the back like some medieval monk or something. That's not the point. We're just being honest with God. We're trying to say, God, here I am on a Sunday morning in August and I'm a sinner and I don't really deserve to be here and if everyone had a wide open picture of my whole life they'd probably throw me out of here including me especially me and so it's like i don't belong here and yet i do belong here because of christ and because of the grace of christ and the mercy of christ right so that's we confess our sins betsy do you have something
Yes. Hmm. Yeah, that's she's pointing out sort of the the beautiful irony that Mary and Joseph went to the temple with their little meager sacrifice, and walking next to them is this kid who is the ultimate sacrifice for them and for us and everybody in Israel and all the Gentiles of the world who put their faith in him. What a beautiful thing. The Bible is a great book. You know, all these connections. That, I want you to see that. I want you to love the Word. I want you to eat the Word, consume it. All right, we're time, our time is up. We'll come back next week. Dave is going to be doing uh, Numbers. And then he'll be doing Deuteronomy in the next week. And then I'll be back uh, following that. We'll kind of keep rolling here, okay? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the word. We thank you for Jesus, who is our ultimate and final sacrifice. We thank you that our sins have been expiated, have been washed clean, and that we are clean in your sight, Lord God. I pray that you would more and more, day by day, make us more like Jesus. Make us more like who we are in Christ. Lord, would you help us shed every sin and entanglement to this world that exists, that we might be truly free as sons and daughters of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Thank you for him, and thank you for the book of Leviticus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, see you next week.